Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thanks for sticking around and staying subscribed. So it is so great to have Karen E. Cooper with me today. She is a photo historian and a writer and has been collecting photographs and researching the history of Minnehaha Falls for more than two decades. Her book, when Minnehaha Flowed with Whiskey, A Spirited History of the Falls is a publication of the Minnesota Historical Society Press. So great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. I'm pleased to be here. So when did you first get interested in Minnehaha Falls? Well, it really goes back to the late 90s, I think. I don't actually know the year, but I started collecting these old images of the area of the creek and then the waterfall. And I was really looking for pictures of plants. I was I lived on the parkway. It's a national scenic byway today, but I thought maybe when the parkway was established, they had a planting plan. There must have been a scheme here. How are we gonna how are we going to tie this long ribbon of road through our southern part of the city together? And uh, so I went looking for that. I wanted my yard to match whatever the historical theme had been. And that wasn't possible because there had never been a historical theme. So I went looking for pictures of from then because I'm pretty good at plants. I could identify this tree or that, this bush or the other. And um, that also was not possible. And as I, as I went along, I found that while there's pictures of Minnehaha Creek from the turn of the last century, there's also many more of Minnehaha Falls. And those intrigued me. So I bought a few and then I bought a few more. And now I have more than a thousand pictures of Minnehaha Falls from the 19th century. Wow, uh, what a collection. Uh, where do you keep them all? In archival boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I keep them in my home. I have a, a I have a entire area that's set up for my Minnehaha Falls collection. It's it's spoons and plates and other souvenirs and textiles and newspaper clippings and magazine pages and all of these photographs. And they've all been scanned and, and um, put into an archival system. So, Because, of course, if you have a thousand pictures that are all of the same thing, how do you find the one you want? And the answer is you have to have them scanned in. You have to have coded ways to re reference them. You have to have some orderliness. And so I've put in the time and effort to make that happen so I can find pictures when I need them. Gosh, I'm jealous of your organizational skills. 
<laughs> when you that, collect things, you, I think, if you're if you're a, if you're a passionate collector, not just someone who acquires stuff, which is somewhat different, and I think equally valid. But when you collect something, the the farther down you go in the details, the more interesting it is. The more you learn about your topic or your object or your field, the more you become fascinated by it. And so there's never any end to that fascination. You can we- it can wear off on you, but if you stay interested in it, you can keep going for a lifetime. And that seems to be the way I've hooked into the f- history of Minnehaha Falls. It just still to this day, after 20 years of study, it still fascinates me. And I and I get and I learn new things all the time. And I'm always surprised and delighted by that. Oh, that's neat. So where does Minnehaha Falls get its name? Well, if you go back to the fort, Fort Snelling, the earliest outpost in what we call Minnesota today, the first permanent establishment. Uh, The fort is begun in 1819 because the government wants to know what they bought when they bought the Louisiana Purchase. So we were Louisiana. And they establish the fort, they bring in the garrison, now there's soldiers there, and a generation goes by. And there's um, an established culture there, there's there's interactions with the native people, there's uh, commandants who come and go, and at one point it's Seth Eastman. Seth Eastman is married to Mary Henderson Eastman, and she writes a book called Dakota. And I don't remember the subtitle, but it's about the local native people that she sees outside the walls of the fort and probably within the fort, I guess. So when introducing her book, she she writes about the little waterfall that is just up the way from, from the fort where she lives. And she's referencing Minnehaha Falls. And she calls it Minnehaha. And she says that that is what the native people call it and um, that and that in their language, it meant laughing waters. And that's a really fun story that everybody likes to uh, believe and repeat even today, but it's just not true. The native people didn't call it laughing waters. The Dakota pronunciation sounds a little bit like Minnehaha. The word the word they use is something like Minnehaha. I would pronounce it, but I don't speak Dakota and my accent is just horrible. Uh, but you can hear it on, on the the Minnehaha Bedote Memory Map, it's not Minnehaha, it's the Bedote Memory Map website. There's a Dakota speaker who will pronounce it correctly. Anyway, this this word sounds like Minnehaha to Western ears. And so they make this joke, Minnehaha laughing waters. And and so the, 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 the word Minnehaha actually means curling water. It means waterfall, it, curling over the edge, over the drop. So this gets applied to the little falls, and it takes a long time. It takes decades uh, before it, before the name settles on as Minnehaha, and it and it really happens after Longfellow puts it into that poem, the Song of Hiawatha, and he makes Minnehaha the name of that poem more or less official when it had been kind of, as I like to say, it had been fluid up until then. But uh, the name is not applied by the native people. It was their word for waterfall. It sounded like Minnehaha. And the, and the European descended people at the fort just applied it. And then Longfellow cemented it. So before it was permanently etched into the cultural history of America, because the Song of Hiawatha was immensely popular at the time it came out. And we can talk about that later and what it did for tourism. But before that happened, the falls were being used by soldiers from Fort Snelling 
uh, settlers eventually as well, and a man who set up a place near the falls that would become known as Rumtown. What was Rumtown exactly? It was actually a young man who had come to the fort as a 15-year-old. His name was Joseph Renshaw Brown, and Brown County, Minnesota is named for him. He was a drummer boy, I think, with the Army. He had enlisted from Pennsylvania, if I remember. And he'd come out uh, to the frontier, and he's in the Army for a number of years, and then he musters out and uh, enters the fur trade. And he is sent to various fur trade posts where he is up this river or that, and he's in Iowa, he's in Wisconsin, uh, he's along the Mississippi River at Fort Armstrong, but he keeps coming back to what they called the entry, which was the confluence of the St. Peter's River, now the Minnesota River, and the Mississippi, which is, of course, where Fort Snelling is, Bedote, that spot. And he, in the fur trade, well, in the Army, too, every, everybody at this point in America is a bunch of drunken sots. I mean, everybody's drinking all the time. The, the national consumption of alcohol is more than double what we drink today, gallons and gallons per person per year. The army is given free alcohol every day. Everybody gets four ounces of liquor, and they're allowed to buy more. So the army's often drunk. And when they get more, they're unable to perform their duties, and they get locked up, and they get out, and they get more liquor. And so there's this demand. There's this expectation of it. There's this demand for liquor. And so Joseph Brown is at uh, is in the fur trade. He's at the uh, Mendota post. And then, he, and then he leaves that in order to become kind of a smuggler and an entrepreneur. And so he smuggles alcohol, not up the river, but over land from Hastings, because that's the that's the way they can hide it from the Indian agent who is um, Tolliver and is watching to make sure that they're not introducing liquor into the area. Well, of course they're going to. And so so he sets up this place called Rumtown, which is across the Mississippi from Minnehaha Falls. It's on what we call the St. Paul side. It would be in Hidden Falls Park today. And he basically sets up this booze shack and hires somebody to run it. And uh, there are times when they have particularly rowdy parties over there so that the next day half of the garrison is in the lockup for drunkenness. I mean, they just, they just had this quick and easy access to alcohol that the, soldier, uh, the officers at the fort had a particular hatred for. And that was because it was, beca- it was within rifle shot of the fort. It was just too close. It was too easy. There was too much drunkenness. There was too much you know, just lack of attention to duty, I guess. Also in the mix, in the early development of the area around Minnehaha Falls, was a man named Franklin Steele, right? Yeah, so Franklin Steele is the, is the sutler at the fort. He comes out as a young man with $1,000 in his pocket, and he is looking for ways to make his fortune. He becomes a sawmill operator for a short time, when the White Pine Treaty is ratified, and so the St. Croix pineries are opened for exploitation. And he sells that off after a year or so, uh, maybe just a season, and comes back to the fort and buys the sutler's store. So now he is commerce. He is, he is the, the one guy who is selling to everybody in the, in the area. And he sells everything. He sells shoes, and he sells cloth, and he sells needles, and he sells food, and he sells liquor. And he continues to build his fortune 
and and runs the sutler store for decades uh into the 1860s when the fort is actually closed down he's still the sutler and he um is at the fort and is aware of the new boundaries for the uh, military reservation. It had started out being all the way north at St. Anthony Falls, and it gets slowly moved back as the needs of the military garrison get a little more localized and the land is being settled. Uh, there's, a, there's a claim that's staked on the north side of Minnehaha Falls when the military reservation is, um, is, is moved all the way back to the creek as its northern boundary. So on the north side, it's a, able to be settled, and, and there's, a, there's a claim there that Franklin Steele immediately buys. When they, when they redraw the military reservation, which they do over and over again, Franklin Steele is the first claim staker on the east side of the river at St. Anthony Falls so that he can put up a mill there. And so he is busily cutting, cutting lumber. He's busily controlling that side of the creek. He's farming. He's doing all of these things. And he's always trading with the government. He's always trading with the soldiers. He's, he's doing business um, with the government until 1857 when he makes his big move. He convinces uh, the government to sell Fort Snelling to him. His business partners and he take over the, uh, the fort and right away at the beginning of that time, Franklin Steele puts up a roadhouse. He calls it a saloon, the Minnehaha Saloon. Little Falls, I guess, was the words he always used. And, and he's selling alcohol in 1857 to people who are coming to visit um, Minnehaha Falls. And uh, he's got a little hotel there. And so that stays in place, that little building. It gets enlarged and improved on and uh, leased out to various operators up until Franklin Steele's death in 1881. And after that, his heirs and his partners continue to have a hotel, a roadhouse, a boozy hangout spot uh, at the falls until um, in 1889. And I think it's partly because Steele has died, he's no longer controlling things. Uh, in 1889, the city fathers decide that they need to have a park uh, in order to control Minnehaha Falls. And actually that's a four-year process that ends in 1889. Um, but the but the idea of rowdyism and mayhem and and drinking and carousing at the falls starts with Franklin Steele when he takes control of the north side of the creek and then he takes control of the south side and puts up his roadhouse. Hmm. So, so the Song of Hiawatha, the epic poem written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, is forever connected to Minnehaha Falls. And Longfellow, by the way, never actually visited the falls himself. What inspired him to write the poem, and why do you think it became so popular? So um, I, I have come to believe that the importance of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, The Song of Hiawatha, is that it gave European descended people, especially in the big cities back in the East, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, it gave the people there a way to elevate Native American people at the same time they were destroying them. And what I mean by that is is Longfellow promoted this idea of the noble savage that this that this race of the red man is is you know going away into the west, and in fact the the Minnesota State Seal has a native man on horseback who is riding away into the sunset, 
and, and leaving the ground held by this, by this settler with his ax and his gun and his hoe and, uh, or plow, I guess. But, but Longfellow made that palatable because he gave story to native people that wasn't actually their story. It didn't matter to the folks in the East, the white people in the East, because they, they were living their urban lives. They, they had, they had beautiful homes. They had, they had big cities. They had every modern convenience, even though it was pre-electricity and, and in some cases pre-plumbing. They, I mean, Longfellow's house was built in the 1700s and it's a lovely home. You go in there today and you walk around and you say, I could live here. And that's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And there's, and there's, you know, hundreds of homes in, in, in Massachusetts that are that old and that are, and that are that, um, comfortable. And so, and so those comforts were, were what the Europeans understood. And then here's Longfellow contrasting that with this magical person who, who's got seven league boots and can crush rocks with his magic mittens and, and who can do battle with the West wind and who, and who can, can stride across the continent. Um, and, 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 and who led his people through a famine and then tells them to accept the white man's coming and he paddles off into the sunset. I mean, this is, this is the story, this is how Longfellow interprets this decimation that's actually ongoing for these audiences. And, and of course it was popular, there's no guilt in that. They're just, oh, these, you know, these noble savages, their time has passed and now we are ascending and they, they, they just aren't. And, and of course, the, the, the truth is far more brutal and far more painful and far harder to look at for us today. But this was just rose-colored glasses for people. That, to me, is, is why the poem was so popular. The frontier was at Minnesota at that time. It was, uh, or, and just moving on, but it was the, the Mississippi River was this enormous boundary across the country the eastward tide of settlement is coming and this and this this river is is kind of the big block but then in 1855 also we get a bridge across the river and franklin steel built it in 1854 we had the grand excursion and that brought a thousand newspaper editors and prominent people and united states senators and all of these folks that came out because they had linked the eastern seaboard to the river by rail it took a couple of days to get to get to the West, it, the ladies could do it. It was pleasant, it was easy, it was quick. And then they'd get on steamboats and they would come up and see the frontier. And so, this, so, so the, the kernels of inspiration for Longfellow, I think come from several things, including that, that grand excursion in 1854, because he started writing the poem a couple of weeks after that excursion ended. And the excursion took, maybe less than two weeks. I mean, they were in Minnesota for about 24 hours. They just, or even just half a day. They, they came up, they looked around, they left. Uh, but there was somebody on one of those boats whose name was Appleton, William Appleton. And I think that was a relative of his, of Longfellow's wife, whose name was Fanny Appleton Longfellow. So I think someone went on the boat, couldn't, and it could have been others, and, and went and told Longfellow about that. I also think that the pictures that the photographers are now, photography has become a portable profession. People are, are, have learned to do it. They can go take pictures. And those pictures are being transmitted to the East. They can't yet publish pictures in a mass way, uh, but they can do engravings. And so there's engravings of 
of, of really accurate scenes of Minnehaha Falls. And those are being published in publications like um, Harper's. And we know that Longfellow probably read Harper's because he wrote for Harper's. Uh, and and so there's there's he can see what this waterfall looks like. He knows that it is one of the sites that we see in in the Twin Cities area, then and of course now. And then there and then there's that that there's that uh, idea of um, art on the on the frontier, where prominent painters came out here, drew and painted pictures. Um, Seth Eastman was the Commandant at the fort on several occasions. He drew and painted. Others did as well. And then they showed those pictures in the East. And so Longfellow would have had access to artistic interpretations, to pretty lifelike drawings, and then photographs as well. And uh, and he also would have had eyewitness reports. And then and then the other thing that really influenced Longfellow in writing the poem, in my opinion, is that he had a friendship with a Swedish writer named Frederica Bremer. And she came to visit uh, Cambridge. They were introduced. He seemed to be quite fond of her. And I write about this in some detail in the book. But she then comes to, she comes to Minnesota. She looks around. She plays Anne North's piano before Anne and John North go to, off to f- uh, found Northfield. And, uh, on, and they lived on Nicollet Island. And then she's taken to see Minnehaha Falls. And she says it's so beautiful it deserves its own saga. And her book is published as Longfellow is writing this poem and she's is looking for his next project. And so he says to himself, I think, in, in this is my read on it, this, this woman who I admire so much, who's such a beloved writer in America, um, has said that this waterfall deserves its own saga. And then it becomes more famous because of the Grand Excursion. And then it's being shown in pictures and and, and so on in, in his area. He may well have seen those. And the next thing that happens is he puts it into the poem. There's just no reason for it. The, the, the poem is about the Ojibwe people on the south shore of Lake Superior. And, and so he nevertheless takes this waterfall, not to Kwamanon Falls, which is near where the rest of the poem happens. He takes this waterfall and he makes it famous. And uh, his... His, his motivations aren't written down. His, his journal doesn't say anything about it. Uh, but the person who claimed to know more about it was a man named Alexander Hessler. How, how does he in, incorporate the waterfall into his poem? So Longfellow's a magical being, and his father was the West Wind who inhabited the Rockies. And, and, he, and his father leaves his mother and... And there's um, there's bad blood between them, so he goes to Long, uh, Hiawatha, the, the title character, goes to do battle with his father, the West Wind. And so, from the shores of Lake Superior to the Rockies, he goes past Minnehaha Falls, where he stops to buy arrows from the old arrow maker who lives there. And he has a daughter named Minnehaha. Hiawatha and Minnehaha fall in love, or he falls in love with her. He goes to do battle with the West Wind, and on the way back, he scoops up this new bride and takes her back to his people. And you know the story proceeds, and then she dies of famine, and um, and then he paddles off into the sunset. But yeah, he's just he's just traveling through, and he stops off to to uh, listen to the laughing leaping water because that laughing water joke had already been populated because of, of um, 
Mary Henderson Eastman's book when she, in 1849, talked about the laughing water. So six years later, Longfellow is making it more popular yet. So how does Minnehaha Falls transition from a travel stop to an area that becomes known more for debauchery and uh, drunken revelry? <laughs> well, it's chasing the, the almighty dollar always. Um, there's a, there's a, there's several pieces to it all at work at the same time. As, as the years go by, um, Minnesota adopts a great reverence for the poem, even though the poem becomes less and less important in American letters. And by that, I mean that businesses all over town take on the names from it. Nokomis Dry Cleaner, Nokomis Lanes, Nokomis Junior High School, uh, Hiawatha Avenue, Hiawatha Shopping Center, um, Minnehaha Everything, and uh, schools and streets, and there's Longfellow Avenue, and on and on. So th- the city really grabs a hold of of these words, you know, Nawadaha Boulevard, Keywaden Park, um, Wabin Picnic Area. All of this comes from the poem. So the the there's all this reverence for the poem in the area. The names are all being adopted. But time has gone by. It's it's 30, 40 years old, and lots has been written since then to pay attention to. So this loses its luster, the poem does. And at the same time, people are flooding into the Twin Cities, into Minnesota. The population goes up every decade. It's just exponential growth um, from 7,000 people to 170,000 people in 10 years, that kind of thing. And so all of these people are taking on more and more specialized work because the industrial revolution is well underway. The milling industry needs specialized workers. And, and so there's a lot of people who have a little bit of time and a little bit of money. They're not working every hour that they're awake to make a living on their farms. They're going to their jobs and then they're done. And so they want to have a little bit of fun. There's also a, a slackening off in the national drunken stupor from the 1830s, but people are still pretty heavy drinking. And uh, seeing people passed out on the sidewalk from drink is not is not a surprise. Um, I think today we would be uh, um, dismayed and astonished uh, to see someone drunk on the sidewalk. And um, back then it was, it, it would happen not infrequently. So there's, a, and, and Minnehaha has this um, additional advantage that it's not in the city until 1887. It's not in Minneapolis. So Minneapolis isn't, is the big population center, but it's not in the Minneapolis jurisdiction. And the Hennepin County um, Board of Commissioners issue liquor licenses, but people ignore that. So, so we have this place that's famous but losing its luster. We have this increase in population and people looking for something fun to do. We also have, at the same time, the transportation equation. We've got uh, the railroad. Franklin Steel ran it past Minnehaha Falls to bring people there. And the railroad has connected into the great networks all over the country so people can come not just to the Mississippi and then get on a steamboat. They can take a train from New York City, Grand Central Station probably. They can get on a train and end up at Minnehaha Falls. And they did. They also have various kinds of streetcars that come and go as the system gets built up and built up until we have electric streetcars to the falls. And so it's easy to get there. It's 
and it's a famous place. And then from the days of Franklin Steele, there had been this hospitality piece. And, and Steele dies, his, his kind of major domo, I guess, on the ground is a man named George Lincoln, who lives at the falls after Steele moves back to DC, which he does 15 years before he dies. And, and George Lincoln is leasing out the hotel and owns the ground or owns a share of it underneath the hotel. George Lincoln is doing a respectable job of keeping things kind of um, classy, I guess, at Minnehaha Falls. He's doing his best to hire people who will do a, um, who will do a respectable job of running the hotel and providing comforts and, and meals and drinks and so on. Um, then George Lincoln dies and the park creation process gets started and things start to fall apart. Once the park has been created, the rowdyism that wants to be at the falls, the people who are there to have a drink and then have another one and then have a couple more and then do some dancing, those people are running businesses that move just outside the park. They move just to the margins. They're an inch away, literally three feet from the park. Here is this dance hall. And they, and they, they the mayhem, because the, there's, there's, the park board's not in charge. The woman who owns the land is named Vinette Lincoln. She's George Lincoln's widow. She is angry at having lost Minnehaha Falls because they had owned it. She's angry that the park that her, her husband died quite young. I, I mean, I, I don't have proof of her anger. This is my belief. But she she's 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 lost the falls. She her husband has died young. Her her prospects are thin. And so she allows these dance halls and rowdy businesses to be built on her land and things just and things just decay into ever more chaos. And uh, it was a partnership, I think, between her and a, a family named Gardner. And the Gardners are the ones who, who really kicked it up a notch or maybe down a notch in, towards the gutter because they, they had a, a lot of kind of low-level criminal stuff going on in their background. We will be back after these brief messages. And we have returned. So these two are Adelbert and Erwin Gardner, uh, a father and son duo yes, who caused more than their fair share of trouble in Minneapolis. And both of, both of them happened to appear in, in my book, Dirty Doc Ames, yes. especially Erwin, uh, who is a medical student <laughs> working for Doc Ames and, and also becomes kind of a real estate developer as well, which you document in yours. Can you talk more about that and, and explain how they were generating income from the area? Yeah, so so they so the gardeners who come to Minnesota in the 1880s and and moved around in various places and worked in politics trying to build the populist movement and had some success in that before uh, the populist movement turned on the gardeners and. And Adelbert's the dad. Uh, Irwin is the son. He graduates from high school in Waltham, Minnesota, down in Mower County. He does very well. He's an A student. He's obviously pretty smart. And uh, they end up running a just a dismal-sounding boarding house in, in St. Paul, kind of close to where the Dubliner pub is today. 
and uh, there's a fire, somebody dies, a whole family dies, in fact, and um, it's next to the stockyards, it's next to the railroads. And so they, they go looking for another opportunity, and they end up putting up a dance hall at Minnehaha Falls. I don't know exactly how they connected there. It was the 1890s. The park has been established. There's a man named Lewis Cass, who's got a confectionery, which is a restaurant, snack shop, ice cream parlor kind of a place. I don't know if Cass was serving alcohol, but it was just opposite the depot, uh, the little princess depot that is still there today. So next to that, Adelbert Gardner builds a dance hall and they begin having dances um, as many as four nights a week. There's lots of, of rowdyism, mayhem, drinking. But the worst of it was that there was, there was young girls who were out very late at night dancing with men that they did not know. 15-year-old girls should not be out dancing at midnight with somebody she's never seen before. And that was, <laughs> that's true today, that was true then, but that's what was happening. And um, so the, the, the county, I guess, it might have been the city, I'm not sure which jurisdiction, brought a lawsuit against them and fined Irwin Gardner for running a disorderly house. Disorderly house is coded language for prostitution. Uh, Gardner was fined $75 and went back to business. And a few days later, somebody burned the dance hall to the ground. Gardner didn't live there. The Casses lived there. The children, their mother had just died. The children are now homeless. They're motherless. Cass has lost everything. And Gardner takes a look around and a couple days later takes out a building permit for a new dance hall, bigger and better, and a little bit, just a little bit further away, like maybe, I don't know, a couple hundred feet. And so the, the, the Gardner dance hall becomes this scene of immense rowdiness. And he, it's really, I think, Adelbert who's running it. Erwin Gardner is the guy who takes the fall uh, for the first dance hall because the, the, the judge says we can't, or, or the prosecuting attorney, I guess, says we can't prove that Gardner was, in, that Adelbert was the owner of this. It looks to have been Irwin. So they, they charged Irwin. And anyway, for the second dance hall, then uh, they have a lease from Vinette Lincoln that says that they may not serve alcohol, which apparently they generally didn't. Uh, they just encouraged men to carry bo bottles in their pockets and drink on the dance floor. You know, anything goes. And and they built this building that they lived in for a time, which meant that there was that there was uh, bedrooms, and they lived there for a very short time. And it was Adelbert and his wife and Clara and Irwin is now married and they have a son named Lewis. And so the five of them live in this building. So we know there's bedrooms upstairs and then they move out right away and they move over to downtown. Uh, and, and anyway, they there's charges of prostitution there, which makes perfect sense to me knowing that there's a building that they had at one point lived in um, that had, had to have had bedrooms in it. So, so I believe that there's ongoing prostitution there. And, and that makes sense in the, in the context of Adelbert, or sorry, Urban Gardner being the bag man for Doc Ames, a story that you know perfectly well, Eric. Um, yep. He, Ames had, the, the, so the city of Minneapolis had had this sort of legalized, quasi-legal prostitution where the women would show up in court and pay their fines once a month. 
And AIM says, actually, we're going to make the system a little more streamlined. We're going to make it every other month. And so the women don't have to come every month. And they only pay a fine, you know, half the time. This cuts the money into the city coffers by half. But he sends Gardner around, Irwin, the medical student, the younger one, sends him to these ladies and says, you still have to pay. You're just going to pay me directly. And it's all quasi-legal. So there's they have no recourse. There's no one they can complain to. The police, cor- police force is fairly corrupt anyway. And so now Ames is getting all this money in. And Irwin goes to court for this and is convicted and sent to Stillwater. And he, and he by, eight, not, by 1902, has left the area and has gone to medical school in Chicago, where he goes on to become a surgeon until he dies at the age of 55 of heart conditions. His father lived to be in his 90s, and uh, they're all buried in Chicago. But, uh, but yeah, the gardeners are the ones who were subleasing Vinette Lincoln's land to a whole row of pavilion keepers who were all involved in some measure of rowdy behavior. It was a little isolated, right? Uh, definitely a trip for, for people coming from Minneapolis. Uh, dirt roads, etc. And it all sort of centered around something called Minnehaha Midway, right? Yeah, so... So I wouldn't say that it was isolated. It was certainly dirt roads. The dirt roads were waterlogged, crooked, old country roads, deep potholes, deep mud holes, not graded, uh, no drainage. These are, and this is just what they had. But the uh, but this is all along Hiawatha Avenue, which has been the throughway through the area for probably thousands of years. The native people would go from Bodote, their spot, their sacred spot at the confluence of the rivers, and they would go to the to the large waterfall on the Mississippi. When the soldiers built their fort, they would go from their fort to their mills up at St. Anthony Falls. When the settlers came to Hennepin County, those same people would go from their farms into town. Today, people go on Hiawatha Avenue from the airport in their Ubers, and they go to the central business district. So this route has always been pretty popular. It's always been a throughway. And the Minnehaha Midway, this strip of land that Vinette Lincoln held onto after the park board took her land away, this strip of land was between Hiawatha Avenue and Minnehaha Avenue. And Minnehaha was laid in in the 1870s. So from that time, there's been these two roads, these two, the names of these two native lovers who meet at Minnehaha Falls, which is charming and poetic. And, um, and, and but between them, there is the Minnehaha Princess Depot and the tracks. And then there's today, there's the wall that closes off the park. And of course, there's the, the side of the road where Hiawatha is, um, on the on the roadside or on the highway side, and then on the park side, there's some grass between the depot and and Minnehaha. So there's that that piece of land, that seemingly uninteresting piece of land, is where the Minnehaha Midway was, is where these these buildings and shacks were all were all put up. I'd like to ask you about Robert Emil Fisher. He he was one of the more colorful characters associated with the falls, right? Can you talk about him? I am delighted to. I think that Robert Fisher was an enormously interesting guy. And it's really because he was he was in in every aspect of Minnehaha Falls. He was a neighbor. 
He lived in the park. He had a child born in the park. He was a park policeman. He was a uh, park board member. And he was shady. When, when Robert Fisher got married, the person who signed his marriage license was Doc Ames. And the other person who signed it was Doc Ames' lawyer, W.W. Irwin. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that was in 1890s, I think. Uh, 1889, maybe. Anyway, um, so Robert Fisher has his hand in in lots of areas of of the of the Minnehaha story, and he's a policeman on the police force. His father-in-law is um, on the force, and a great friend of Doc Ames, which is why Ames is at their wedding. And Fisher doesn't succeed as a policeman because he lies about some information he has about some criminals. These these guys who who killed the streetcar driver named Tollefson, the, the the murderers were named Barrett, and they hanged for what they did. Uh, but Robert Fisher had some facts of the case that he did not tell the police department, and they fired him. Even Ames couldn't protect him in the face of that. And so this Charlie Hill, his father-in-law, who's on the force, then becomes the first police chief of the newly formed Minneapolis Park Police. And as you know, we have our own separate park police force. Uh, and, and Charlie Hill was the first captain of that. And he hires Fisher to work in Minnehaha Park. And he's not successful there either, mostly because he's really rude to people. And he treat, he's accused of treating them like cattle. He's sassy. He's obnoxious. People don't like him. And, um, and so he's let go from that as well. While he lived in the park, he lived in the park policeman's house. And that is where his daughter, whose name was Edith Minnehaha Fisher, was born. So, so Fisher then has acquired some land in the neighborhood and it was, I think, originally part of the um, of the Lincoln Estate, and he he gets like what we would call today at least four lots. It might have been as as big as eight city lots, and he's got a house and he's got a barn and he's got more kids. He's got five or six kids, a bunch of daughters, and he settles in there. But he doesn't really have a job after that. His family had spun up this patent medicine company called um, uh, the Volk, the Volk Remedy Company. And, and so he takes that over and he has these two products, one of which is Eureka Catarrhal Cure, and it's supposed to cure catarrh. I like to say it probably worked because we don't know what catarrh is anymore. We don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and then he had something called Hindu oil, which is a dreadful name. And it was supposed to um, cure everything from from swollen feet to earaches, and it would not blister your skin. So he's got these two little weird little medicines, which he manufactures and sells uh, all over the country. He sells it by mail. He sells it in drugstores. And he can't be making a lot of money from this. Uh, Fisher also decides he's going to be a perfumer. And so he buys synthetic perfume, and he and he mixes it. He makes his own formulas, and he puts it in little teeny tiny bottles and sells those for a quarter a piece. Some of that stuff still exists. When Robert Fisher died, his, his daughter, Edith Minnehaha Fisher, saved his stuff. 
And when she died, her two daughters, she lived with them, they saved all that stuff. And then a few years ago, when those two very old daughters were, uh, who had never married, were going into care, the person in charge with clearing out the house contacted me because um, I had an interest in the area and asked if I wanted some of this stuff. So I've, I've read hundreds of letters from the Fisher family, and I've got uh, all of this stuff, including the perfume that he used to make. And, you know, perfumes generally degrade into a scent that's pretty close to what baby powder smells like, and this is pretty much where that's at. But the company that made those artificial scents is still in business, so we could go and recreate his scents if we knew exactly what proportions he was he was using. But any, anyway, I, I, I get excited about Fisher because I know so much about him, and yet he's such a mystery to me. He, he found another way into making some money to support his big property and his large family, and that was making sand art. And sand art is the, is the most extraordinary thing when it's done well. It's taking grains of colored sand, grinding them until they are all the same size and so they behave predictably, and then packing them into glass bottles in such a way that you are building a picture. And you can make quite elaborate scenes in this way. You can make pictures of George Washington on horseback and waving flags in the breeze and steamboats heading up the river and happy birthday Dolly and the date and and borders and scrolls and flowers and birds and lovely stuff. And the man who invented that art is named Andrew Clemens and his art today will go for hundreds of thousands of dollars for a six inch tall bottle of sand. And Fisher knew about this art. Of course, it wasn't worth that then. Back then, one of those bottles would sell for three or $5. But Fisher knew about it and he learned to do it. He learned to make this sand art. And so he spent the rest of his life putting sand into bottles. He'd go down to the falls and he'd collect some of the colored sand that's down below the falls. And he'd go home and he'd make these little pictures and he would sell them all over town. He'd sell them at the falls. He sold them to the park board for their gift shop. And yeah, he just he just had this cobbled together little livelihood from selling medicine and perfume and sand bottles. And uh, he doesn't seem to have done much else. That seems to have been how he supported his family. And that's kind of extraordinary, I think. Um, he went on to be a, a park board member. He also ran for city council, didn't get elected. And he went, uh, his, his platform was, we need to extend the streetcar out to Fort Snelling. It's 1905. They finally put the streetcar in. He's not elected. That it, the streetcar goes in a couple of years after that election. But there's a picture of the, of the Chamber of Commerce, and it's a big panorama, and they're all lined up in front of the streetcars at Fort Snelling, and this is the first cars, and we're all going to go and celebrate. We got the streetcar all the way out to the fort, and lurking in the background of that picture is, is Robert Fisher. He wasn't a member of the Chamber of Commerce, but he got on that streetcar because, you know, he felt he had a right to be there. And I wouldn't argue with that. I think he did, too. It was his platform a few years earlier. I do want to remind listeners, since you brought up the, the murder of Tollefson, uh, just in case that, that name rings a bell, I did do an interview about that murder on Minnesota's Most Notorious a couple of years ago. Well, that's, that's fantastic. As soon as we're done, I'm going to go listen to that podcast. <laughs> 
Sure. Uh, also, there was another police officer that you talk about extensively in your book, uh, John O'Brien, who was caught up in a scandal, right? Yes, but I would first like to give a shout out to John O'Brien's granddaughter, who I met this autumn. Oh, I, cool. I give walking tours at the park, and she said, this is who I am, and this is my son, and we're here to take the tour. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, no, because I have things to say about your criminally corrupt grandfather. And she said, oh, we are fascinated by this. We couldn't be more proud. <laughs> <laughs> So that was a joy uh, to meet them. And they had some of their family story and I had some of it. And so we had a great conversation and uh, I'm sure we'll talk to her again. But John F. O'Brien, I think is an Irish immigrant and he's, it's probably John Francis, of course. And he shows up on the police force at Minnehaha Falls in the 1890s, during the time when when Gardner's first dance hall is up and running before they burn it down, and there's another dance hall down the way run by a man named Babcock, and so people are walking back and forth between them. The soldiers would come from the fort, and the, the girls would come out from town. They're, they're all, like I say, industrial revolution workers. They've got a set bunch of hours that they work. They've got money in their pockets, and here they come out to enjoy the falls and go dancing, and so there's... Uh, so there's a lot of, of walking around in the park on those summer nights. And the policeman, John O'Brien, is there to shake down the public. Uh, he's got this little scam going. And he would see a couple walking in the darkness. And he would say, you, come over here. He'd say, I saw what you were doing. And you're going to empty your pockets. And otherwise, I'm taking you downtown. And so he's threatening them with jail, that they, that they were up to something that he was going to swear was not okay. And, uh, and maybe they were, who knows, probably not. But uh, they would empty their pockets and he would take their money. He would take boxes of candy. He would take cigars. He would take whatever he felt like he could get away with. And people would complain. Sometimes they would say, look, we weren't even in the park when this guy stops us and shakes us down on threat of arrest. And he just kept getting away with it. The reason uh, he was getting away with it is that he was being protected by the park board. And th this is a piece of research. You know how it is when you're writing a book, you just can't, you can't keep researching. You have to, at some point, finish the book. And this yeah. is a piece that I would very much like to return to because who was protecting him on the park board and what was their relationship with William Berry is, is the question I haven't answered. And I know that it can be found out. But, but in any event, O'Brien is blackmailing William Berry, who is the first and then standing park board superintendent. And the park board is protecting William Berry by not dragging this into the light. There's a time, not only is this shaking down the public going on, but there's also a, a whole complicated story about the water supply in Minnehaha Park. And there, there was a couple of them, actually. One is to feed the pavilion that the park board builds in the early 1900s. Another one is to sprinkle the grass because they're growing grass. And they've got all these flower beds planted and they need to irrigate. And so, so that's creek water, right? There's no reason not to use creek water to irrigate the flowers. And that's what they're doing. But for the drinking water in the pavilion, they've got uh, a water tank and they've got a gasoline engine that pumps water to fill the tank out of a well that the park board has, has dug for the purpose. 
And so somebody has to manage all of this, right? They have to, they have to run the water system, whatever small amounts of care it needs, somebody has to do that. And so John F. O'Brien would charge the park board for what they called turning the water on and off. And he would charge them as much as $200 a month to do this. And he was only making about 60 bucks a month as the park policeman. And so he, so he is making more than double his salary for doing a very simple job. And the park board would, the, the membership of the park board changes, you know, with every election. And so, and so new people would, would cycle on or people would cycle off and they, and people would say, why are we paying this man for this? And they would vote it down, but then they'd come back around and they would vote for it the next month. What's going on there? Why would they do that? And it turns out that the blackmail of William Barry is never explained but it is mentioned in park board records. Somebody offers to explain. The park board says, no, thank you. It's not William Barry who's on trial here. It's John F. O'Brien. And, and O'Brien wasn't really on trial. He was brought before the park board to explain a whole series of charges, including shaking down the public, which he didn't ever stop doing. But he also was charged with a bunch of other crimes. And that included, he was supposed to take care of the animals in the zoo at Minnehaha Park. He did not do that. He starved them. Some he starved to death. Uh, he took their fodder and gave it to his own cows. He stole building materials. He allowed peddlers to come in the park and sell whatever they wanted to. Um, shaking down the public, of course. He was charged with sleeping on the job, although I don't see how he had time to fit that in. But the biggest thing that they brought him in for, the thing that made the park board president blow up, finally lose control, finally say, we're going to get to the bottom of this, is that he was throwing parties in the John H. Stevens house. John O'Brien would take his rifle down to the deer pen in the zoo at Minnehaha Park and shoot the deer and hang him and drag him back to the John H. Stevens house, that storied little house in the park. And, and he would have kegs of beer and women who are smoking cigarettes, heaven for fend. I mean, this is a loose group. And he would have what they called the deer and beer party. Yeah, and this it's a catchy so annoyed name. Ab it's a catchy name for sure. But this so annoyed Abraham Adams, the president of the park board, that he said, we are going to get to the bottom of this. He's hauled in. The blackmail thing comes up. It is quickly squashed. And then they fire him. And he doesn't quit. He actually doesn't quit his job. He's been fired, but he still goes to work every day. And somebody is still paying him. And it takes weeks for them to finally say to the comptroller or whoever's in charge of the park board's checkbook, take this guy off the rolls. Do not give him another paycheck. And when they do that, he moves right across the street at um, 5040 Hiawatha Avenue, where he lives for a number of years. And this is in 1905 that this part of the story happens. At the end of the 1905 season, William Barry quits his job. This is where we get Theodore Worth. They have to go find somebody new because William Barry taps out. And when um, Theodore Worth gets a look at the zoo in the park, he says, this is unbelievably unacceptable. This is shabby and horrible. And these animals are so poorly treated. Uh, they have, we're going to close the zoo. They have Fish Jones, who's going to put Longfellow Zoo, opens in 1907, and they move some animals there. But some of them they have to put down because they just aren't healthy enough to move. 
and they can't be salvaged. Starving animals, I mean, that, that kind of hurt my heart. Yeah. Where, yeah. where was the zoo located in relationship to the falls? And what kind of animals did it have? So if you are in the park and you're near the waterfall, and maybe you're standing looking east, so that the waterfall would be on your right and the red-roofed building called the refectory where sea salt is would be on your left, then you're looking in the general direction of the zoo. It was a little bit to the north of there, and it was on the edge of the... Of the, of the, it was on the edge of the plateau where it drops down into that lower canyony spot that we call the deer pen. And, and that was where they kept the hoof stock. There were buffalo and there were moose and there were elk and there were, and there were whitetail and all of these animals are, are down there in this big penned in area. Um, not again, well cared for. I, I read one report that said that the deer and the elk were mating with each other. I don't know what that was about. But, but up on top, on the high ground, there was a bear grotto, which had two or three bears in it, different times. Uh, there was peacocks, and there was eagles, and there were beavers, and there were guinea pigs, and there were groundhogs, and there were crows, and lots of different animals. They, the, the, you might call it the cast of characters, but the list of animals... So the list of animals changes from year to year. They're always listed in the park board annuals. And that really tells us that those animals aren't surviving. It's not that they suddenly had a flamingo and they gave it away. They had a flamingo and it died. Um, there were alligators that they kept. And, and the animals that were more tender that couldn't take the cold, which was most of them, lived in like greenhouses and, and barns uh, at, Long, at um, Lindale Farmstead over by Lakewood Cemetery. And uh, yeah, and it, it, I mean, the zoo was popular with the people because of course, um, exotic animals were unusual and, and fun to see, but they just, the, the park board frankly did a terrible job at keeping these animals healthy. And um, so shutting down the zoo was the best possible idea. But, but yeah, it was, it was a long, there's, in this area now there's two, there's two trails, one for walking and one for bikes. And it's and ha as you head north along the edge of the deer pen. So over there somewhere. There was a, a merry-go-round and, and a Ferris wheel at 1.2, right? Yeah, but not in the park. Um, the merry-go-round seemed to have moved quite a bit. And I, I wish I had a picture of it. I've never seen a picture of it. But it seemed to have had various different operators. It had various different people uh, who would buy it from one another or maybe just lease it. And uh, some of them were far shadier than others. There was a guy named Parks who was running it, I think. And uh, he also had a saloon downtown. So we know he was involved in the alcohol trade. He had a girl working for him who uh, was only 15. And she also worked in his saloon. And she would be out all night long. And next thing you know, Parks and and uh, and someone else are in court trying to explain criminal congress with a girl underage, because they're criminally congressing with a girl who's underage because she wanted to ride the merry-go-round. Um, it also belched a lot of smoke, and there were complaints all over the neighborhood that it was noisy and it was smoky, and it played terrible music, and it could be heard forever, and it was. It was nothing but a nuisance. 
Eventually, it is bought by a man named Charles C. Patton, who was a Minneapolis policeman, who was a conductor on the streetcar, and who became what they called the Sunday School Carnival Man. And Charles Patton um, lived at 5028 um, Hiawatha in George Lincoln and Franklin Steele's old house, uh, which they moved there. But he also was the, the guy who ran a clean operation. He didn't have... Um, iffy carnival games that you couldn't win at. He didn't. He didn't have rides where fifteen-year-old girls' virtue was at risk. He just had a carnival and toured it all around Canada and the Western United States. And and so that was how the merry-go-round eventually ended up. And I think he might have put it much closer to his own home uh, when he was running it. But uh, the the Ferris wheel. I do have a picture of, and, and there's a picture of it in my book, but I don't know anything more about it except that it existed. I don't know who owned it. I don't know who ran it. I suspect the gardeners. They did run other carnival kinds of attractions, um, but I, I don't know more about it except that, yeah, there was there was a merry-go-round and there was this Ferris wheel, and uh, and it was near the gardener's pavilion. So how were the, the gardeners ultimately forced out of the area? So there's, so there's several ways that this Minnehaha Midway is being attacked by the park board and by the public. One of them is that they, is that they bought some land in the area. They bought the strip of land that's to the north of the park. And they call that the Godfrey Strip or the 200-foot strip. And in, I think it was 1903, they buy this piece of land because there's a few businesses that are over on that piece of land. And when the park board takes that and makes it parkland, then no one can be there. The Minnehaha Midway is on the western side of the park. And so they want to squelch the opportunity for those western side businesses to go anywhere else. They fail at this, but the idea is they're going to they're going to shut it down. So that's one pressure that they put on the midway. Another one is that the the neighborhood farther to the west, which is now today Holmes, and uh, and a pleasant neighborhood, is at at that time in the early 1900s. It's being built up, and the lots are big, like Fisher's was. His house was back in there. Um, the houses are big and far apart. And so there might be three houses on a block instead of the, what, 20 or 22 that we have today. And so the people who are building these big houses on big lots are, for the most part, prominent and successful people. And that means that they're executives of one kind or another, they're lawyers, they're doctors, and they want peace and quiet. They're the ones who complained about the merry-go-round. And they're the ones who say we don't want this midway, partly because of the moral issues, partly because of the noise. But the biggest complaint was always, we can't get to the streetcar without walking past this. And this is, this is people of color who are dancing and we have to walk past that, and that's not okay. That's the sentiment that they brought to it, as well as the these people are drunk, and so and so the the these these prominent ladies, these prominent lawyers, these prominent doctors, are all leaning on the park board to eminent domain the land and take it away, and that process uh, is underway. So the park board is being leaned on and they take this piece of land. So these businesses have nowhere to go. 
And these people are leaning on this, the park board to eminent domain the land, but there's one more player in, in, the, in the equation. There's one more moneyed, uh, uh, powerful thing to bring to bear on this problem of the midway, and that is the railroad. So the, the, the wealthy people come to the railroad and they say, can you just put a fence between your own land, between the railroad right-of-way and, and this midway set of shacks and businesses and dance halls and so forth? And if you do that, then people will come in on the streetcars and instead of walking west and straight into these pavilions, they will walk west and hit your fence and we'll starve out the pavilions and everything will be great. And so the railroad agrees to this and they put up this fence and it's like kicking an anthill because all of the businesses back in here, all of these pavilion keepers, all of these rowdy nonsense folks uh, suddenly have no business. And there's one on the end who's get people will walk, people can come off the streetcars. They walk to the end of the fence and then there's one business at the end and they all stop there. And walking all the way past, you know, all the way back down the road, they just don't do it. So this guy is getting all of the business and everyone goes berserk and they start suing him and they start suing each other. And like I say, it's like kicking an anthill. They all just go into a frenzy. And and so it works. It 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 shuts down their businesses in large measure. There's just there's just no money in it. And so they start to fight back and they say, look, we're going to, we cut a hole. Well, they, they start to fight, they don't say anything, but they, they cut holes in the fence. It lasts for three weeks in front of every pavilion door. They cut holes and now people can just walk through. And now the railroad is going berserk and they say, look, we're going to spend $20,000. We're going to find the guilty parties. We are going to make this, we're going to make, the, make this right. You can't go and cut our fence down. And they repair it. And, and so this is in the 1903 season. At the same time, there had been in the park another attack on these pavilion menace, which was the park board put up their own pavilion. And I, I referenced that earlier with the water supply. So that's doing gangbusters business. The day that it opened, every seat is taken by 830 in the morning. And it stays that way for the entire season. He's hiring 20 waiters at a time. He's hiring candy helpers and dishwashers and counter ladies and ice cream people and on and on and on. It's just can't, he can't keep up. So the park board's doing very well taking business from these pavilions. The fence has shut them down. They cut holes in the fence and then that gets repaired. And so there's this uneasy truce that goes on. Uh, the, par the pavilions will have nowhere to go. There's pressure from the park board to take their land. And the park board starts doing that. They start taking away bit by bit, lot by lot, pieces of it, although Mrs. Lincoln hangs on to her share till the bitter end. And then at the end of the 1904 season, the, the park board's pavilion within the park, this prominent and, and useful place that's doing such good business, it suddenly burns to the ground. Surprise! <laughs> now, the gardeners who are running this row of pavilions are the prime suspects because the the deal with Mrs. Lincoln is that is that that they have a lease until 1907 and she will sign over her land, but the park board must honor their lease until 1907 and the park board also must allow them to take their buildings which is completely unusual. They're supposed to, the buildings run with the land. You buy a house, you don't buy the lot separately. It's all one thing. 
But but she's like, nope, these buildings will be removed by the gardeners. Those are their property. And so the park board agrees with this because she had sued them time and time again during the park creation process. And she's just going to hang on tooth and nail. And so by 1907, uh, so so then we have this period of time when the, the there's no competition in the park and uh, the gardeners are still running their show. But things are really kind of sizzling out because... Irwin's moved to Chicago. He's off to be a doctor. His father is running the show, but it's increasing pressure on him. He can't get too far out of line because the people in the neighborhood are more and more populous and more and more noisy. And so this this period between 1905 and 1907, things just kind of drift down into nothing. And by the end of 1907, then the park board takes ownership of the land and they just the buildings are removed. I don't actually know the buildings are removed or destroyed or whatever it is. And, and it just all sort of peters out. That's the end of the midway. And the park board has a lot more authority now, right? And over a period of decades, a real uh, transformation took place for the park, but getting rid of the Minnehaha midway was the last real hurdle in really scouring things clean. Yeah, that's really true. There was uh, the what I think it's um, uh, Andy Sturdivant who calls it the persistent forces of merriment, which is a lovely phrase. Those persistent forces of merriment left the park with the end of the midway, and I would say they have not returned. Um, there was there were threats there were threats to people too about just public drunkenness. The park board, uh, after their pavilion was burned down in 1905, they built a new one. And uh, the design they chose is fireproof. It's still standing today. It's the red-roofed pavilion that we know. And uh, the original plan and threat to the public was, we're going to put jail cells in the basement of this building. So you you drunks can just uh, watch yourselves because we will... we will build a who's gal right here at the park so we don't have to haul you downtown and we can... And we, and we can keep tabs on things. They also made uh, drunkenness at Minnehaha Falls a crime with mandatory jail time. You can't pay a fine to get out of this. You get drunk at the falls, you're going to jail. And they would send people to jail for like 60 days, 45 days, a great long time if they were caught drunk at the falls. And so that really that really had an influence on things too. As, as time goes on, I think... I think that there's kind of a balance between this idea of of the reverence for the waterfall, which people felt in the time of the Song of Hiawatha. It was pure, it was perfect, it was picturesque, it was all of these kind of high-flowered emotions that the Victorians cherished. It was in some ways a representative of the collective national faintly felt sorrow about the fate of the native americans they it wasn't it wasn't a visceral understanding of that of that tragedy it was just oh well riding off into the sunset like all of that high flowered emotional tone by 1900 the poem is 45 years old and it all just is fading away industrialization has come, things have gotten more ramped up, as we know, you know, we're just a few years away from things like radio, and a really modern era. And so the, and so the time has passed for, for that, for that set of emotions. And I think that the, that the rowdyism faded away kind of in concert with 
with that emotional sense. And I think that there was some sense that I have, I had the idea that those, those things worked in concert, that, that when there was, when there was this, this sense of beauty and, and, and preciousness, there was also this conflicting sense of, of, of just kind of more visceral, more, more banal, more basic pleasure. And, and they started with one of them quite high in the scale, they came into balance, and then the other was quite high in the scale, and then they both just kind of evaporated. And, I, and I'm not sure why that makes so much sense to me, but it really does that there was this, there was this balance that got out of balance, into balance, out of balance, and then it just went away. It just stopped existing. So for anyone who, who, who's listening to this now, that maybe this spring would be interested in going on one of your tours, uh, buying your book, how can we connect them to you and your work? Yeah, easily done. Um, the tours that I give are sponsored by the Hennepin History Museum, which is hennepinhistory.org. And uh, they are selling my book. I was just down there signing copies. So you can get a signed copy from them. And they sponsor, like I say, they sponsor the tours. So my dates are not yet established, but I'll be doing them once the weather comes back in the spring. Um, and so that would be the go-to is just is go to hennepinhistory.org and look for that. Uh, I do have a website too, which has lots of stories on it, none of which are covered in the book. Uh, I started writing Minnehaha stories there, and then I decided to write a book. So I stopped writing for the website because I was concentrating on the manuscript. And since then, I've been doing promotional work, and, and I'm intending, of course, always to get back to it. But there's, there's more Minnehaha Park stories there that aren't covered in the book. Oh, and my, and my website is urbancreek.com, U-R-B-A-N-C-R-E-E-K. <laughs> Very cool. And if you do visit, you can buy alcohol again, right? <laughs> oh, oh, Eric, 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 do not get me started about the alcohol situation in the park. My advice to people who would like to have their own in the park is to go to the Dairy Queen and get a paper cup and use that <laughs> because <laughs> right. uh, the uh, you are not allowed to bring your own alcohol to the park. You cannot bring a beer with your sandwich. You cannot have a glass of wine while you listen to music. It just simply isn't allowed. Uh, in recent years, 3-2 beer was allowed and that's no longer the case. Um, now you, you may buy strong beer and you may buy wine at the, uh, red roofed pavilion at sea salt restaurant, but you must drink it in the immediate vicinity and not leave their patio. And that's not particularly strongly enforced, but that's the general deal is you can only buy it from them and you can only bring it there, uh, or drink it there. And I just, I just disapprove of that. Uh, because you should be able to have a Corona while you're fishing. You should be able to have a glass of wine with your picnic in the deer pen. You should be able to um, have that, you know, pleasure and moderation. And the park board is kind of stingy with that permission. And, and I, and I don't understand why I, I honestly don't. It has to be that it's a great moneymaker for them to be in charge of selling the alcohol. I know they make a great deal of money from sea salt and good for them, but it would be nice if they, if they uh, 
would understand that the public maybe would like to bring their own and doesn't want to drink what the park board thinks is good wine. Well, this, is, this has been great. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Again, I have been speaking to Karen E. Cooper. She is the author of When Minnehaha Flowed with Whiskey, A Spirited History of the Falls. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Until next time.